this is his supervising professor for his, uh, his uh, PhD program that he's in down at Southern Seminary by Dwayne Garrett. And I read a good number of pages last night. It is fascinating. And if, if you think I've really not delved deep enough, because we're not going to get all that deep today, but it is a fascinating book. It's entitled The Problem of the Old Testament. And so he admirably critiques everybody. Uh, I'm going to say whether you're a dispensationalist or whether you're given to covenant theology, he admirably critiques both and provides what I think is a splendid understanding of how to understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Uh, I could hardly put it down except I knew I had to go to sleep. So I will recommend this book. All right, in Isaiah chapter 66, here's where we're at. The Lord is assuring Isaiah that his purposes of salvation and judgment are being accomplished. Uh, This is review. We've looked at this now for weeks and weeks and weeks. The Lord has purposes of salvation and judgment. Both are being accomplished. So here, I want to start with an observation that applies to everyone. And I could have an asterisk by the everyone because technically there are few people that fall outside of the everyone. Most of those people that fall outside of the everyone, maybe not every, maybe not all of those outliers, but they're dangerously close of being outside historic Orthodox Christianity. So I'm really not talking about those. I'm talking about Christians who believe the Bible and take it as the word of God. For Christians who believe the Bible and understand it to be the Word of God, I'm going to share an observation that is going to be kind of the backdrop for finishing Isaiah chapter 66. The principle goes like, and and this includes, we've been in Isaiah now for just over a year. Today's our last Sunday, and when I say we've been in Isaiah, this is only starting at chapter 40. So from 40 to 66, we've been in it for about... Uh, we took a month off, I'm sure, for December, and I had COVID for a while. So, so a good year, a little bit over a year. And out of all the resources I use in Isaiah, and, and I can't look at all my resources every week. I've got too many. Um, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches how much I have as a pastor and as a Christian in America. You have an, an embarrassment of riches as well, the fact that you can carry a scripture and gather so openly and boldly in America. That's just a wonderful privilege. But I'll say I've got at least two, to two dozen resources I've checked fairly consistently in Isaiah. They all fall into this principle. The principle is this. When it comes to interpreting Bible prophecy about future events, our own understanding of what is written utilizes some combination of literal and figurative interpretation. It's a combination. Nobody is strictly literal. Nobody is strictly figurative. It's some combination. Now, it just so happens, I think my combination is spot on right. (laughs) Just like I thought it was spot on right when I first came here 27 years ago. And it's changed. It wasn't spot on right then. It's not spot on right now. It won't spot on be right the day I breathe my last. But I do want to be pursuing what I think is closer to what God's word actually reveals. It is a process. 
We all have a combination of the two. Let me give you some examples of the combination. If I were to take a word like resurrection, I've got some resources that they rely very high, heavily on a figurative, symbolic interpretation. So a lot of the passages they look in the Old Testament and they, they view it symbolically, metaphorically. I'm not comfortable with that. But when it comes to the resurrection, everyone agrees the Bible's talking about a physical bodily resurrection. Even those that are much more figurative than I am, when it comes to the resurrection, they're like, Christ rose from the grave. Bodily, molecularly, there will be a resurrection of, of the dead everywhere. Everyone will rise physically from the dead. They all agree to that. So, on some sense, nobody is consistently all the time figurative simply because of the resurrection. Now, take a word like Jerusalem. Jerusalem in the Bible is a word that's used in a variety of senses. Sometimes in Scripture, certainly in Isaiah, it's, it's a word used for Israel. It's kind of like uh, in America, in a lot of news stories, Washington, D.C. is a word that's used to represent what Americans are like or what American law is like or what American uh, government is like because out of Washington, so the city stands for the nation. Jerusalem stands for Israel. Oftentimes, Paul uses Jerusalem in the sense of Gentiles believers are associated with children of Jerusalem. So it's used in a variety of senses, but Jerusalem is commonly personified as a woman, barren or married. Everyone agrees that's figurative. Nobody thinks when the Bible talks about Jerusalem as a, as a woman who either isn't bearing children or is bearing children, they're not actually thinking the city, it means literally the city. Everybody knows that's figurative. So everybody that I'm looking at has some combination of what is meant to be taken literal and what is meant to be taken figurative or metaphorical or, or symbolic. It's some mixture of that. Because we're talking about future prophecy and nobody knows exactly how that's going to play out. It hasn't played out yet. Let's make it a little more difficult. Let's say, what about Jerusalem's depiction of restoration and the call to rejoice with her or for her? Is that meant to be taken literally? That Jerusalem, the city, is literally renewed? It's literally restored Jerusalem as a as a geographic city in the land of Israel, actually experiences a time of restoration and the world is called to rejoice? Or is that metaphorical? Is that symbolic? What about depictions of Gentiles supporting Israel's restoration? The Gentiles will lend their support to Jerusalem's restoration, literal or figurative. Now it's a lot fuzzier. Now it's a lot more unclear. With that in mind, turn in your Bibles, look at verses 7 to 11. I'm going to show these verses on the screen, but to get all those verses on the screen, they're going to be pretty small. You may need to follow along in your own Bible. On the screen, it looks like this. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? 
Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. That you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. That you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. I'll start with an easy question. The easy question is, who's in labor? And the answer is, Zion, Jerusalem. So Zion and Jerusalem is the center of this passage. Zion is in labor. Zion gives birth. Let's make some observations. The first observation is it's interesting that three times there's this idea of labor, pain, and labor. Three three mentions of that in these few verses. But even more astounding than those three references to labor and pain, and there are different words. I don't have time to go into uh, Hebrew stuff. But more interesting than that, that eight times in those first few verses, you've got this concept of giving birth and delivery. This is a very vivid metaphor. It is packed with with this same image over and over and over of giving birth, delivery, labor, and pain. It is packed into this idea, and it's all associated with Zion and Jerusalem. There's one more... Very interesting observation. I think this is the next slide. No, it's not. This is, uh, there's two different approaches you can take to this idea of Zion and labor, delivery, giving birth. One approach is going to be very figurative and, li- and uh, symbolic, and it comes from a premier Old Testament scholar. And I know I probably toss around words like that all the time. But Edward Young, who has been, he's, he died some, a good number of years ago, uh, but he, he taught Old Testament uh, theology, I think it was at Westminster Theological Seminary, but I could be wrong, I forget. But he, he's got three volumes on Isaiah. Isaiah was his, he loved, the old, he loved Scripture. He loved the Old Testament, but Isaiah was really in his wheelhouse. And so his understanding of all this imagery, he would summarize it this way. The purpose is to show that there will come a great increase to the church of God. That all that imagery, this vivid picture of, of giving birth and, 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 and all this accomplishment is, is the triumph of the church, according to Edward Young. Now, I'm not a scholar like Edward Young, and I could probably throw up a, a quote from a scholar who would take the opposite side, but I'm just going to give you my take on it because it was simpler. The opposite side would be something more along this picture... The purpose is to celebrate the dramatic salvation and restoration of Jerusalem slash national Israel. One is much more metaphorical, symbolic, Edward Young. And then there's others. There's scholars in this category. I'm not a scholar, but there's scholars in this category that say this is a picture of a restored national Israel. Not a remnant anymore. Not a remnant of Jews chosen by grace, but Israel as God's chosen people from the Old Testament there comes a point where the nation Israel comes to a point of salvation. Now, there's one more observation that I need to make that I don't know whether you caught it or not when I read those first few verses, but it's very important in my my understanding, in my own combination of what is literal and what is symbolic. And then I'm going to show you how I try to work through these verses that are up on the screen. But the other observation that is very key is that there are two verses in that passage. There's not one birth, there's two births. 
So let's break it down. Birth number one. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. This is a birth that takes place before labor. The second birth, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in a moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. One birth before labor, before pain. One birth, as soon as she was in labor, she brought forth her children. Let's break those two down. The first birth in verse 7. When the Bible uses those words like labor and pain, I take that as what the Bible calls in Jeremiah the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, In the ESV, it calls it the time of distress for Jacob. Those are two references on the board, Jeremiah 30, Daniel chapter 12. Both references say there is coming a time of distress and trouble. I'm going to call it what Jeremiah or what Isaiah calls this labor and this pain, it is a time of trouble for Israel that is unprecedented in their history. A time that is they've never seen before. It will never occur after, but there will be this one unique. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna read to you. You don't need to turn to this one because I'm gonna read it really quick. But in Daniel chapter 12, here's how it reads. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation until that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. A time of such intense trouble and yet they're delivered from that time of distress. Jesus, I think, talks about the same thing when he teaches about Future things in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21. Jesus likens it to birth pains. And Jesus calls it a time of great tribulation such as never been found on the earth. Question. If this has, I don't think this has happened yet, this time of distress, this this great tribulation. Was there a birth that took place apart from that labor, apart from that pain? Would it help if I capitalize the word son? Because I think that birth is in reference to the Messiah. I think that birth is in reference to Jesus of Nazareth. That Jesus was born to Israel and for the world. But this was apart from the great tribulation. It was apart from the time of Jacob's trouble and distress. It was apart from this unprecedented day of pressure placed upon Israel. But there was that birth that took place. Let's look at the second birth. The second birth occurs very quickly as soon as labor onsets. Very quickly. This is the second birth. This is not now before the distress, but as the distress ensues, and then the birth takes place very quickly. I understand this to be national Israel's moment of faith, their moment of salvation, their moment of deliverance. We're going to look at a few of these passages. Zechariah chapter 3, you'll find that if you're using a pew Bible on page 794. So flip back. Zechariah is almost almost the very end of the Old Testament. So the only book after Zechariah is Malachi. So it's the second to the last book of the Old Testament. 
I want you to look at Zechariah chapter 3. I want you to look at Zechariah chapter 12. If I didn't have Lenten season coming up, I probably would be tempted to just keep going and expanding and layering and all these other scripture texts, but I'm not going to do that. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 6, it reads like this. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, he's the high priest, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, that's an important word, that behold. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. That's the first birth that Isaiah talks about. A birth without the pain. Verse 9, for behold... On the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. There's two things that take place there. One is, the Lord brings forth his servant, the branch... And the second thing is he will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day and there will be this time of everyone inviting a time of blessing and favor and prosperity because the Lord has removed sin from the land in a single day. Now look at Zechariah chapter 12. I don't give you a page number because I assume you've already found Zechariah 3. All you've got to do is flip over a few pages. Zechariah chapter 12. One of the interesting things in Zechariah is to look at all the references to on that day because it's repeated over and over and over again. There's, a, there's something very significant that's happening at a very particular point of time. So Zechariah chapter 12. It's kind of interesting because what I have in my notes says the oracle of the word of the Lord and my Bible says the burden of the word of the Lord and I think these are both English standard versions but I think what happens is versions sometimes tweak their words a few times, so I'm not sure which one to read. I guess I'll go with my notes. Zechariah chapter 12 reads this way. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. That's the time of Jacob's distress. That's the great tribulation. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. Verse 6. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right... And to the left, all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. 
And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then the most important verse, in my understanding, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn on that day. The nation of Israel that said, crucify him, crucify him, we want Barabbas. On that day, they will recognize the one they pierced was the Lord's sent Messiah and they will mourn and a nation will be born on that day. The other two references are in Isaiah 59 and Isaiah chapter 60. So go back to Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 59, all the way through, I, I've kept telling you over and over how important chapter 59 is because in 59 you've got that drama where nobody can save Israel and the Lord says, I'm going to do it myself. Nobody else can solve Israel's problem, their sin problem. I will solve Israel's sin problem. And then it ends with verses 20 and 21, which are words quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 11. It reads this way. Isaiah 59, verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you. And my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. A nation born in a day. A nation that doesn't wander back into idolatry, doesn't wander back into sin and disobedience, doesn't wander into rebellion any longer. On that day, they're given what Ezekiel calls a new heart. And they live under the terms of a new covenant. And they live in the circumstances of what Isaiah calls new heaven and new earth on that day. Then in chapter 60, in light of what the Lord has just said he, he would do at the end of 59, chapter 60 reads, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. Jerusalem is renewed and restored and all of the world takes notice. And all of the world is celebrating what the Lord has done for his people, for Jerusalem. 
Their light has come. And when we were in chapter, Isaiah chapter 60, we spent several weeks there. There were several points we made. Number one, the most important thing that happened in Jerusalem is the Lord is glorified. That was number one. Uh, what's the answer to the question? What's the most important thing that just happened? The Lord was glorified. Secondly, we saw Jerusalem, Israel restored. We also saw Gentiles coming to salvation. Jews and Gentiles first, to the Jew first, also to the Gentile. Both are restored in that scenario. Now, having said all of that, let's look at verses 10 to 24. We're going to go a lot quicker through the rest of the chapter to see how this plays out. And, and there's a few pronouns in here. Is early, like 20 minutes before Sunday school started, I'm still flipping like, is that pronoun referring to the Gentiles or is that pronoun referring to the Jews? Um, and I'm, there's a few of those pronouns I'm just not entirely sure with. Uh, but it's not, it's not a game changer. It's just interesting. So here's how verses 10 to 24 look. I'm going to back up to verse 10, which we've already read, but I want to get a running start. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. That's that vivid metaphor of Jerusalem as a mother who, uh, who a nation is born in a day. Verse 12. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse. You shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one whom is their comfort, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Now if you kind of reduce this to some, some main points, number one, Jerusalem is portrayed as a mother. Previously she was portrayed as barren. Now she's not barren. She's rejoicing. She's rejoicing in her children. Paul takes that. He layers it out to the Gentiles in Galatians chapter 4 and says, you Gentiles are part of Jerusalem's children. And I think the Lord is going to use that to provoke his people to jealousy, according to what Paul writes in Romans. Look at Isaiah 54. There are any number of places in Scripture, even in Isaiah, more than one place, where Jerusalem is portrayed as a barren woman, now she's given the opposite effect. Everything's changed. But look at, at uh, Isaiah 54, verse 1. This is uh, very complementary to what I'm reading in Isaiah 66. 54, 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will, peop and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will not forget the for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, 
The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. God never deserted his church. God did desert Israel. God did desert Jerusalem. But with great compassion, he will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. Never said of the church. But of Israel, it's true. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. A great transformation has taken place. A great reversal. She who was forsaken, abandoned, barren, now brings forth children so large that she can't even imagine God's blessing that has taken place for Jerusalem, the chosen city. The Lord promises to comfort Jerusalem. I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. If that sounds familiar, it should, because that's how this whole section started. This whole second half of of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, they begin, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. That's how it started, this New Testament of Isaiah. I'm going to comfort my people. I will speak tenderly to my city. And now we have the Lord saying, I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. What he promised to do, he brought to fulfillment. Then we've got another behold, beginning verse 15. We've got another behold. A behold is take notice. Don't miss this. It goes like this. I'm going to throw it up on the screen and start over. Verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. The comfort that the Lord brings Israel is comfort in her deliverance, but it's also comfort in her enemies are banished. There's two edges, two sides to this comfort. Two, uh, it's a double-edged sword. Salvation for some, destruction for the enemies of the Lord, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of Jerusalem. So you've got behold, assurance of comfort and salvation. You've got behold, an assurance of judgment. Everybody here stands under one of those two beholds. Not just everybody who, ever, who happens to gather in a physical building we call the church. Everybody who has ever breathed God's breath on this earth stands in one of those two beholds. You either stand in, under the behold of comfort and salvation in Christ, or you stand under the behold of judgment. And the fact that you may be with a group of people that are in the other behold isn't, gonna, isn't going to sway God's judgment against you if you're in the behold of judgment. There is peace to be found. There is forgiveness of sins to be found. But it's only in Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's keep going. The pledge of judgment... This assurance of judgment includes those in Israel who apostatized. It's not just judgment against Gentile nations. It's judgment against Israelites who apostatized against the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verses 17 and 18 read this way. Those, speaking of Israelites, who sanctify and purify themselves 
to go into the gardens following one in the midst eating pig's flesh. We read about that in Isaiah 65 as well. And the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. So there's judgment against not only the nations gathered against Jerusalem, but judgment against Israelites who have apostatized against the faith of their fathers. Verse 18, the Lord says, For I know their works, these unfaithful Israelites. I know their thoughts, these unfaithful Israelites. And then this very important statement, And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. Because there's a a prophecy in Scripture, or there's an emphasis in Scripture that Israel are going to be the Lord's servants to the nations of the earth. But for Israel ever to be a servant to the nation, all the Gentile nations of the earth, first they have to be purified themselves. Christ has to take away their sin. But for those that have apostatized and don't recognize Christ as Messiah, they're judged as well. They fall under the judgment of the Lord as well. But there's this plan coming where God is going to gather all nations and tongues, and they, the Israelites, shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. I don't know what that sign is. Most commentators say the sign isn't specified. I think if I read long enough and hard enough, I would be able to come up with some pretty good guesses from what I'm gleaning from what other people say. But at this point, I'm going to go with, I just don't know. Let's keep going. Uh Uh-oh. Verse 20. And they shall bring all your brothers... They, the Gentiles, so if I back up a second, uh, whoops, I backed up too far. I'm all lost now. Uh, Okay. These Israelites are going to come and see the Lord's glory, and the Lord will set a sign among these Israelites, uh, because they're going to take a message to the nations. They, the Gentiles, shall bring all your brothers, these scattered Jewish people, from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, dromedaries, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them, some of these from all the nations, some of these Gentiles, also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring, speaking of Israel, and your name remain. From the new moon to the new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship me, declares the Lord. And they, which I think refers just to the Israelites, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. And that's how Isaiah 66 ends. Which is not, a, is not like a, a fairy tale in all the fairy tale books, and they lived happily ever after. In Isaiah, it ends with this scene of judgment. This clear distinction between those that... Im- that are uh, enveloped in the behold of the Lord's comfort and salvation and blessing, juxtaposed against those, behold those who perished in judgment 
because they would rather have it their own way. And as I said, everybody's in one of those two beholds. Nobody takes this literal that in the new heaven and the new earth that you can take a, a scenic tour and see those that are still in this process of perishing. Certainly, we've got a lot of vivid metaphorical language. You can't be, there's a lot, there's a, some sort of a balance between figurative and literal. But there is some, some context for this verse 24 because it's kind of, a, it's, it's born out of the concept. You remember Israel's first great deliverance was out of slavery in Egypt. And the Lord delivered them out of slavery. They passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. And then Pharaoh and his Egyptian army came after them. And the Lord closed up the Red Sea and the entire army perished. And then it says in Exodus, it says Israel looked at the dead bodies of the Egyptians laying on the shore. The Lord had delivered them from their enemies. That's the same image that's used here. This image in verse 24 is an image that Jesus picks up on in the Gospels when he talks about this eternal punishment where the worm doesn't die and the fire is never quenched. Jesus picks up on it. Jesus, meek and mild and lowly, picks up on this very graphic, disturbing image of those that choose to have it their own way. And everybody falls in one of those two camps. Isaiah means to end this way because he wants you to examine your heart. He wants me to examine my heart. Where do I fall? Which behold do I fit into? I'm not going to be grandfathered in because of my parents. I'm not going to be grandfathered in because I was a pastor of a church. I will only, be, I will only inherit the kingdom of God because of the work of Christ who takes away sin. That's what Isaiah wants you to know. He's made this explicitly clear through his entire prophecy and now it ends. What are your comments and questions? Anyone? Lori, the pig's, the pig's flesh kind of stuff? Uh, I, I didn't get into it so specific to be able to give you some context for that. I mean, all I know, m- most people, what they're going to say, and, and I don't know if you could even know, but the idea is whenever they are incorporating into their worship Gentile pagan practices. So what... How Gentile pagan practices used broths and stews and different meats and mice and whatever to factor into how they worshipped. There are apostatizing Jews who incorporated that into their own worship because we all really worship the same God anyway. And God is making it clear, no, they will be judged. Uh, I think also, if you think way back earlier in the Old Testament, when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Lord. Wasn't there something with the mice, the golden mice that they put into the Ark when they sent it back? I mean, so the Philistines somehow, I mean, it seems like if you're going to pick a god, you'd want to go higher than a mouse, right? But, I mean, all I can tell you is they did. Somehow it factored in, and uh, the Lord pronounces his judgment against it. But what exactly that looked like, I I couldn't tell you. Joe. That's one of the days I fluctuated on. The, the, brothers are, the brothers are Jews. The brothers that are brought, I think, well, are they? Joe, that's a... I, I have... If I had... See, if I weren't quitting Isaiah a week early, I might have been able to be more confident. I have fluctuated on those days. I, I want to, as much as possible, keep them consistent, but it's hard to know. 
you know, the, the end of verse 19 says, they shall declare my glory among the nations. So, uh, it's, either, either way, you've got this glorious picture of the gospel going out or the, Lord, the Lord's triumph in Jerusalem and among his people. That message is going out in such a vibrant way that, it, that nobody doesn't know what just happened. Just like uh, when Israel was saved through the Red Sea, 40 years later, Rahab says, oh, we know about your God. We heard about how your God dried up the Red Sea. Like, we are fearful of... 40 years later, now, she's not in the remotest part of the earth, but still that's pretty impressive because in our culture, people don't remember much past last year. Uh, But Larry doesn't talk politics. I don't want to talk politics either. Uh, but in this occasion, you know, you've got these remote areas of the earth that are named. It names some places. The point is, nobody is not going to know what the Lord has done for his people. And you can say the people, these are the redeemed people of God, and they are. I'm going to say it's the redeemed people of God. I'm going to say it's for Israel, too, and specifically for Jerusalem. It's that, too. We're going to know that the Lord has fulfilled every promise he's ever made to his people. Purposes of redemption and judgment, they're all brought to completion in Isaiah. But you can wrestle with those days. Either way, you've got some very, uh, it's very, it's a very powerful image, and I, it could be true either way, whether you take some of those days as Gentiles or Jews, I, I go back and forth. I've got both sets of slides on there. I thought right before the service, if I'm going to go with Jews or if I'm going to go with Gentiles, I'm not sure. I know it starts with Jews. I know Gentiles are in there. I'm just not sure about what each they refers to. Somebody else? Roger. So the first question would be, what is Isaiah thinking? When he writes New Heavens and New Earth, what is he thinking? You could go either way. I guess I'm going to lean towards a final eternal state of new heaven and new earth. But the problem with that would be, in verse 24, you know, then you're going to obviously have to take that very figurative. It's hard. Isaiah pictures a time, because I read about it when we were in 65, Isaiah can picture a time where there's no death. So Isaiah knows there is coming an age where there is no death, none, zero. Just like John's revelation, no death, no disease, no sickness. Isaiah knows that's happening. Whether he means to refer to that here or whether he means to refer to a millennial reign of Christ, I'm not going to quibble. I'm not going to quibble. Maybe if I actually get to read this book in its entirety, it will help. He's critical of dispensationalism. Like he, he's, he's not going to say, I take the dispensational side. He doesn't strictly do that. Nor does he take the covenant side. He sees both sides as having limitations. It's, it's a crazy good book uh, for the little bit that I've read. Yes. Yes. Just like in the Gospels, I think one of the points I remember, I remember Philip Carey, who I really enjoy Philip Carey's lectures. I know Rick McVeigh likes him too. Uh, Philip Carey, one of his points is, in the Gospels, it rarely tells you, it rarely makes the decision for you who Jesus is. In the Gospels, what's presented over and over again is, who is this man? Because it's asking the reader, who is this man? Who is this individual? And it keeps giving you these encounters, and he gives you these teachings, 
And he gives you these incidents that are happening. And, and underlying it all the whole time is, what do you think about this man? Who do, who do you think he is? It's always probing the question. Because you've got you've to, by faith, understand this is, this is what the Gospels say. How, how could I believe otherwise? Isaiah is kind of ending the same way. Um, he's challenging the reader, both Israel's reader, and now here we are more than 2,500 years later. He's charging us. What do we think? It doesn't just all end well because we're all God's children and we can sing Kumbaya. It ends well for those that have received salvation in Christ. If this record is true. And that's where all my chips lie. Uh, Sonia, did you have your hand up? Okay. Somebody else? Cindy. Well, I was reading Isaiah 54, right? 54, where uh, the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of her youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In an overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. Christ doesn't hide his face from his church. No. Correct. Correct. He never, he never abandoned the Jewish remnant. There's always a remnant chosen according to grace. And he, he never hides his face from them. Yeah. Well, I, I would say you could draw some sort of a parallel. I mean, just like uh, because you know, uh, the sower goes out to sow, uh, but the, the enemy comes in and sows tares, and shall we go up and gather up the tares and pull them out? And the Lord says, no, I'll take care of that in my own time. I, I will separate the wheat from the chaff in my own time. So there are lots of false prof- believers, professors within the visible church. But yes, the real church, the, those that are really reconciled to God through faith in Christ, that church is pure and it always has been. But to distinguish one from the other, you, I can't tell. I can't tell. Just like with Israel. There is a national Israel uh, and there is not all of it. Not all are of Israel who are of it. There's the spiritual descendants of Abraham, and there are the physical descendants. And just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't make you, doesn't gain you entrance into the kingdom of God. And, and for national Israel, the Lord hid his face. But for national Israel, I think there will be restoration and salvation. Somebody else? I mean, next week's going to be a lot different since... It's not going to be, it'll be a lot different doing words from the cross. <laughs> Rick. So, so are you saying that uh, keep on or stop doing what you're doing or? That's, that's interesting. Yeah, there, uh, there's a difference between judgment and chastisement. I mean, I don't know. That's a really good question, but it's also very technical. And so it would require a lot of time to work that out. Uh, God's people can be chastised and disciplined in love. What father doesn't discipline his child in love? But God's people will not fall under condemnation. So in Corinthians, it makes it, Paul makes it very clear to the Corinthian church. I like the line. I think I could. Paul makes it clear to the Corinthians that God loves you so much, he will kill you before he lets you be condemned with the world. And that's out of the abuses that are taking place at the Lord's Supper. Where it says, uh, oh, I love this verse anyway. So, 
What's happening is the church is gathering, they're celebrating, they're having a common meal, then they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and, and because a lot of people are very blue-collar blue and working, they're not waiting for those people. They're like, ah, forget, you know, don't worry about the, those that are more needy and maybe can't arrive on time, like, just forget, we're just going to do our thing, we're going to have our own fun. So, um, he talks about uh, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the whole body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So that's part of the Lord's judgment against his church. You're weak and ill, some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we should not, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We will be, the church will be judged, but the church will not be condemned along with the world. And there's a difference. We will all face judgment, individually. I think as a church, what God has entrusted to us, our resources, what we've been stewarded with, we will be judged. But because of Christ, we will not be condemned with the world. Christ is our hope in life and death. And that's a good word. Let's stand and be dismissed. God, our Father, I thank you for Isaiah. Boy, I hate to lose Isaiah. Like I feel like I'm leaving an old friend, and I know I can revisit him and read it whenever I want.